0: Hi everyone! This is Beata. Welcome to oh, I almost I forgot the name of the podcast. Welcome to Solo Leveling. I am back. Um, let's, let's catch up on some of the books that I've been reading. I hope you guys have been doing well, especially in this terrible, terrible heat wave. I oh man, it has been quite quite annoying. So we are going to start with my recently read book which was The General an Angel by Howard Fast and this is a collection of fantastical short stories. So sadly I haven't really been having good luck with short story collections these days but I did want to point out three of the stories in here that I really enjoyed in the collection. So number one is The General an Angel which is about uh set in during the vietnam war and it's about this general that um one of his like uh comrades is like firing off or whatever and then accidentally like shoots an angel down and at first the general oh i guess spoilers (laughs) for these stories i'll I'll go a little bit into them but like the general goes and he at first he doesn't believe that it's an angel and it's kind of it's hard to explain, because in these stories, not a lot really happens. Like, there's not really... There's a points to the stories, but they don't really feel... I mean, just go in, I think, um, understanding that while there's a point to them, they might not necessarily have a clear plot, I guess. Or they might not be satisfying in the way that you want them to be, with, like, you know, a beginning, a start, and an end. Like, for example, in this one, the general zaps an angel, like, he finds the angel, and there's a bunch of, um, you know, kind of funny stuff about uh religious leaders around the world, like, coming together and being like, oh, what are we supposed to do about this? And the general just not believing in it, and how At the end, like the angel actually gets up and like the complete disdain that this angel has for all of the humans there and it just shakes its head. It's just like ah, stupid, silly humans and it just flies off. And I think like if you look at it, it's about the ludicrous nature of religious debate in the ways of which I guess people are so adamant that like they have the right idea of religion and this is, of course, only about like people that aren't accepting of other people's religious beliefs and of like the variety that comes in faiths. But it's also about how like the person who th- believes themselves to be the rational person, quote unquote, um, is in fact also ignorant in their own ways. And in their attempt to stick to their rationality, it's a man-made construct, and so they are more actually more willing and more irrational when things that they can't explain appear in front of them or things they just don't want to believe in and it's all about that it's about like you know beliefs and how everybody wants to believe in their own particular thing and kind of like how the the unexplainable things in life and like the higher divinities don't care necessarily about what each of us believes it, you know they're not there to validate us in a way so at least that's how i read the story and the second story i recommend is the mouse which that was my favorite story i thought that it was really that was the only one that actually got me emotional um, and had me feeling the strongest emotions just because it's the story about a mouse that is kidnapped by aliens and the aliens um, give them mouse uh, sentience. Or it, they give them, like, you know, a human consciousness on the same level as us or as the aliens. And eventually, like, they don't need the mouse anymore. And they're going to go back to their home planet. So they leave the mouse on Earth. And it's really kind of sad. And, like, the mouse uh, it's just like, you gave me... <laughs> You gave me this consciousness, and I don't know what the fuck to do now. Like, how am I supposed to live on a planet where everything tries to kill me, and also where I, I, um, I am higher than even humans at this point in terms of intelligence and sentience. And eventually, like, there's this sad moment with, but also like very bittersweet where the mouse goes into the house, into like the field where it was first caught, and it sees um mount ma- uh, it sees a mouse trap and it just thinks of all its brethren and it thinks about how like because it has all of this consciousness that it has lived a fulfilling life and that uh, you know, its brethren, even though it is technically smarter than all of them, that its brethren deserve to live their lives too. And And in that moment, like, there's this idea of, like, consciousness, I think, as being, like, never-ending in some ways. And so the mouse goes and puts itself in the trap and is like, well, you know, I had my moment in the sun, kind of. Like, I did live. My consciousness was there for however brief of a moment it was. And that matters. Yeah. And then, like, the human comes along in the house and it's just like, oh, I've caught a mouse, ha, ha, ha. And then just throws it back onto the field. And it's like this idea of like, again, humans don't know shit about anything. That idea of like, oh, a beautiful life, a deep complex life has been snuffed out. We don't often register the other lives people live or the other beings that we live alongside on earth as being deserving of any other th- thought really and the third story i recommend is tomorrow's wall street journal which was um the story about a stock investor i think who gets uh who makes a double uh who makes a deal with a devil and uh the deal is to get tomorrow's newspaper today basically And the idea is, like, oh, like, if you get tomorrow's, like, newspaper, you can see all of the stocks and the prices and increases and whatnot, and you can put your bets on the right one today and make a ton of money. And he and his wife, like, argue throughout this whole story. Like, at first, they're very lovey-dovey. They're like, oh, we're going to be rich. Yay. And then they just um, stop fighting over it because, like, they go to the bank and, like, the person, the clerk that they see is uh, the wife's brother or something. Uh, he's one of their relatives. And it's just like, bro, I know you guys don't have any money. Why are you asking to put this much money on? It's a telephone company. So like, wh- why are you asking to put so much money on a telephone company that people don't use telephones telephones are not going to become a thing like why are you putting so much money on that and he just refuses to lend them the money and this gets into like a whole uh fight between the wife and the uh broker because you know what's the point of having tomorrow's newspaper if you can't if you don't have the money to put any to make more money and and um the stockbroker is just like oh man like that devil really sure changed me and uh, and the devil appears and it's just like, hey, I never, you know, I never said it would be successful, but, uh, you know, maybe this will help you grow and whatnot. And the stockbroker eventually gets it into his idea of like, oh, like, yeah, I mean, like, it really sucks. And like, my wife is bitching all the time now about it. And the devil does sort of his devilly thing of whispering in the dude's ear. And it's just like, Hey, you know you know what would be cool if you you know what's funny, like your wife, like she's got a pretty good amount of money on, on her life insurance, huh? And you can probably see where this is going on. So it kind of ends on that note, um which is a a a nice, like darkly humorous note, I think. So yeah, I also recommend reading the forward because it's pretty interesting. It summarizes like how it fasts life and his style of writing. And he does write very forward wry stories and I did love seeing this sense of humor come through those stories at times. And I, I also just have to say it, but if you um look at the cover, like unfortunately the book that I got from the library, it had a different cover, but The cover of the General Zabton Angel um, has art that was inspiration for a really famous shot in the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, and that's probably what drew me to it as well. Yeah, so the cover is just very cool if you get the um, older version, I guess, because I think the one I got, it was reprinted in 2019, so they changed the cover, but... Yeah, the general zapped an angel. And I'm going to move on to one of my favorite reads this month, which was The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, And this was a great story that just really deglamorized heroes and war. And I really enjoyed it, even though it was very hard to get through at times. Like the way that Barker writes uh, the settings of the camps and the violence that happens on including trigger warnings for rape and various sexual assaults and just all that bad stuff um, the way that she wrote them it was done I think very respectfully but it was still very much hard hitting and it didn't flinch away from the terrible circumstances because her book focuses on during the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, I believe. Basically, it's taken from Homer's Iliad. And so it's about specifically the hero Achilles and about Briseis, who um, he took as a slave after he raised down her kingdom and like killed all of her family. And this was very, you know, uh, typical, I think, back then and it was typical in a lot of cultures to just take like the people especially the women as like slaves and like the kids and whatnot maybe not the kids so much actually yeah i don't want to talk out of my ass but yeah so this is based on homer's ilian and i've never read it so i have no clue how accurate it is if you've read it you might uh, go in with different expectations, but I came in basically with no expectations other than knowing, hearing that it was a very hard hitting book and it definitely did hit hard. So first of all, as I mentioned, Pat Barker excels in portraying war as it is. The environment and camps are dirty and disgusting with vivid imagery describing the garbage piles sewage, and overall lack of hygiene that existed during those times and under these extreme conditions. Bach also doesn't hesitate to show how women were treated and seen as spoils of battle, items of conquest that could be thrown away at any moment. It's in the middle of this that we're introduced to Briseis, a princess who was made into a slave by Achilles and who was blamed for starting a war between the hero and Agamemnon, the commander of the Greeks. I don't think you need any basis in mythology to enjoy Barker's book. Moving on to the writing. I think the writing was really compelling for me. And it just sucked me into the book. And it's a rather slow moving book when you think about like the events that happened. Like, oh yeah, Achilles, you know, um, like it's a lot about the power dynamics between Briseis and Achilles and her relationship with him and how Achilles is seen by uh the other men and it's just a whole thing about like toxic masculinity about grief and trauma about um how the as I said de-glamorizing heroes in war and the nitty-gritty of like the terrible things that actually happen in the name of getting glory and getting wealth and how it only benefits like the victors and only benefits the men yet at the same time it wears down on the men and i'm not saying of course you know all toxic toxic masculinity will always harm the women and the people targeted by the men who experience it and that's always been where my priority is because i think you know it's more important to rely on those victims but in a way the men who undergo toxic masculinity, they're also victims of a society that has raised them to see themselves and and their relationship with others in a very certain way, in a way that is about dominance and not about anything else sometimes. And that's really harmful. And I think this book did a great job talking about that without also neglecting, neglecting the fact that at the end of the day, you know, Briseis and the other women—they're getting the brunt of all of these men's like trauma and like their own issues with themselves, and that's seen very clearly in the way that Achilles treats Briseis as basically his mom, <laughs> and it gets very oh very weird, where his mom was like a sea goddess and she eventually abandoned him and went back to the sea, um, and. Achilles has never really gotten over that and Achilles still hurts from that abandonment and he he sees Briseis as a replacement for his mother at times and they don't talk about it but it goes pretty much unsaid between the two in the way that he treats her at night. So yeah and I just want to read you this quote that I really liked and I think It gives you a taste for Barker's writing style and whether you'll like the book. But then, suddenly, there she is, striding out of the sea. And this is about Achilles' mother coming to give Achilles new armour. Slung across one slender arm, there's a shield that later in the day, Alcimus and Automedon, both strong young men, will struggle to lift. For her sake, he pretends to admire the shield and all the other pieces, Though in reality, he scarcely sees them. He needs this armor to get onto the battlefield. That's all. It means no more to him than that. And oh my god. Mosquito. I hate mosquitoes. Die. Mosquito. There's just little moments of that where you see the gaps in armor of these heroes. Like Achilles, Agamemnon, um, Patroclus. And you see those little gaps in the heroic visages of these men and it's great i think those are really interesting moments of seeing the vulnerability and of battlefield culture and of you know heroic figures yeah we see the pride and the extreme fragility that makes a great hero and we also see the misogyny rampant in greek culture that has influenced him yet his deep desire to still connect with his mom, a sea goddess, and to not be abandoned and be vulnerable like he was as a child. And even though the writing drags on sometimes and is descriptive in places where I don't think it should be descriptive, I really loved Briseis. I think her connections with the other women and girls that she meets in the camp and her insights into mythical women, not just men, like Helen of Troy does so much to talk about the ways in which women were treated, and that idea of being fought over isn't romantic, um, because it's fundamentally tied to being seen as an object, like Helen of Troy. You know, you there's this r- super powerful moment where Briseis remembers meeting Helen of Troy and how everybody kind of like they respected her in front of her face, but they hated her because they saw her as ironically what Briseis would also be seen later as as you know, oh, she's just some woman. Much, You know, they call her a bunch of names, but just some woman who, like, caused all of this pain and, like, the war we're going through, and it's her fault, yada, yada, yada. And it's very much akin in some ways to, like, slut-shaming when instead they should be blaming the men for causing these wars and not Helen of Troy for being beautiful and desirable. And how, uh, at the same time, though, There is a certain amount of power in being beautiful and desirable, um, as we see throughout. And I think, again, Baka does a great job of balancing these multi-layered aspects of identity and of power and privilege with these women and making it so that, yeah, like there are women that are more privileged, but at the same time, how privileged can you be in a... (laughs) You know, in an environment in which eventually you're going to grow old. You're going to, even the most beautiful girl is going to grow old, old by um, men's tastes. And then, you know, for whatever reason, she might do something to piss him off one day. And that's it for her. And she's dumped like garbage. And that's it. Because in the end, all women are viewed as disposable, again, um, by these men. And in the end, the power resides with them, not with women. You know, we're talking about power, and it's important to note all of these layers of power. But ultimately, and it's very relevant still now, in the fight against patriarchy, like all of us should be together. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge the intersectionality of factors that go into our experiences under patriarchy. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there are also many kinds of girls in this story, including those who are trying to survive and those who don't want to. There are princesses turned slaves and slaves elevated to higher positions in life, but it's made clear that no woman is really winning. So a quote from the book is, they were men and free. I was a woman and a slave. And that's a chasm. No amount of sentimental chit chat about shared imprisonment should be allowed to obscure. And this is a quote specifically about um, Briseis becoming friends with Patroclus, and how they're friends. But that also doesn't stop the power dynamics that exist in the world from seeping into these ties. And Briseis always remembers. You know, Patroclus is Achilles' best friend, and there's this moment which I've heard is also in the Iliad where he's just like "Don't worry, I'll make I'll make Achilles marry you." And in this book from her perspective, she she's just like laughing. She's like, "You're going to make him marry me? Okay, like how you go number 1, okay, even if you could do that, you know, which is a a far removed possibility, and then number 2, like that's what am I supposed to do? Thank you. Like, oh, wow, what a privilege. Like, allowing me to marry, like, the man who raped me and who is my captor. And I do like that it's, like, Patroclus. And people love, you know, shipping Achilles and Patroclus. And there is definitely... Baka doesn't stray away from the homoeroticism of that relationship and of the sexual tensions, including all the other men in the camp gossiping about it and how close they were. And it is brotherhood. It is... um it is them being soulmates, really, and that extent of closeness. Like, you feel, um, spoilers, (laughs) you feel like, or at least I felt sad. I felt pity, I think. I felt pity when Patroclus died because I was, and I saw, like, Achilles fall down, but at the same time, it's just like, okay. Like, you know, um, so many men have died already so many people die like so many women die for just being women in um under achilles's watch and you know it only matters to him when it's like oh his close friend who died his close friend who by the way was kind of like brought over himself because he <laughs> basically like beat the shit out of another kid and he was sent as punishment and just given to achilles as like a playmate. So in that way, Achilles and Patroclus is, are also bound. And there's this thing of like Achilles gives a quote-unquote request to Patroclus um, that scene that where he's like, oh, please, Patroclus, can you do this for me? But really, it's a order. And in the end, Patroclus is still beneath Achilles, never to be his equal. So there's also that dynamic, which I found really interesting, and how you feel... For Patroclus for his circumstances and you feel for Achilles when he loses Patroclus but also I think you feel so much for like the women in this book and you feel for so many of them in many ways which I think is like Super well done, and that's what really is at the heart of this book. That's why it's called *The Silence of the Girls*. Yeah, so it's, this is one of the best books I've read this year. Highly recommended. Um, I know some people don't like it because I think it. it you know what? I'm not gonna say <laughs> say why. Um, but I guess like some people don't like it because they're like, oh this like villainizes Achilles too much I'm just like hey if Achilles can literally be portrayed as like a blameless hero I don't know why and, and besides like I don't think that this book villainizes Achilles completely like I think that it portrays him as like so human and people mistake characters having to take fucking responsibility for like their actions and for the power that they wield and mishandle as as them being villainized but that's not what is going on here in my opinion and I do think that this book clearly shows like the detrimental effects of this culture on the men themselves and on Achilles especially like we get points from his perspective where it obviously weighs down on him and those are moments that are intended to make you feel and are intended to show you as I said, like, the vulnerability inside of him that is denied him by society a lot of the times because of who he is. So I definitely don't think that's villainizing him. The Silence of the Girls by Pat Baca, you should read it. So yeah, Silence of the Girls by Pat Baca, I enjoyed it. One of my favorite reads of the year so far. Uh, Just really recommend it if you're into... um, a sometimes difficult to get through story, but very much feminist, very much <laughs> just good, yeah. So next I am going to move on to uh, to Strip the by Oto Toda, and this is a collection of short stories. It's a manga, and you can read a free preview of it on Viz. Oto Toda, I don't really know anything uh, about him, so this is my first time reading his stuff. And I have to say, I don't know what was up this month with short story collections, but most of them did not hit for me in that only a minority of the stories within the collections actually worked for me. And I should actually think of what was a good short story collection that I enjoyed, but I can't think of it right now. But in any case, so my favorite stories in To Strip the Flesh was the eponymous to strip the flesh um david in love and hot watermelon which was my favorite out of the three and first of all the art is really beautiful um you can tell i think that oto was a an assistant for tatsuki fujimoto i think at some point or they were assistants together (laughs) but in any case like you can kind of see the influence i think in the way that they depict these really emotional moments viscerally in um very like clear uh let me see it's a little hard to describe but they have a very clean style i think even when they're doing very emotional moments which i really enjoy and chainsaw man is actually like There's some messy emotional moments in there, but yeah. So those three stories that I mentioned make the manga worth picking up, and the rest were a little lackluster, though they were fun in their own ways. So To Strip the Flesh is an especially powerful story that intertwines hunting and how one's body is perceived by others with the journey of a transgender man coming out to his father and considering gender reassignment surgery and there's actually two of the stories in there one is about him and then the other is kind of um about his friend and about him and the second one is very sweet but like the first one is this a really great panel in there um that was just very powerful visual imagery and i i think that The idea of hunting was also really interestingly incorporated in there as hunting is seen as something very masculine and how the protagonist himself felt like a deer at times or an animal that was being cut open and that was very much objectified. So that was really uh, well done in my opinion and I think the sort of gentle coming out coming out to the dad and the dad realizing that this entire time his son was right in front of him and that he thought that he was keeping to his deceased wife's wishes by you know making it so like oh my son can't be my son like my you know my wife like saw him as a daughter so he has to remain a daughter when clearly you know that she wanted, she wanted her child to be happy above everything else, and I think in the end he realizes that, which is very sweet, even though it is a painful journey at times for sure. And and the art is, as I said, just really stark and emotionally powerful at times, especially in my favorite story of the bunch, Hot Watermelon. And Hot Water, Hot Watermelon is about this teenage boy. And his tense and resentful relationship with his mother, whom he perceives as indifferent because she's always smiling and he takes that as a sign of her actually not caring. When in fact it turns out she does very much care, but she she's doing it for him because she thinks she has to keep on a happy face, but she's also doing it for herself because she she doesn't know how she'll deal with, you know, moving on or carrying forward if she doesn't keep this false face on. So all of this changes when he uses a spell from the internet, which is a very weird spell of um, that will make you feel what your target feels. And the result is really wonderfully bittersweet as he feels finally what his mom feels for the first time. And I'm just a sucker for those stories. Like, I'm a sucker for... Uh, Same With Blood on the Tracks, actually, another manga, which is a horror manga about really messed up, like, father, not father, really messed up mother-son relationship, and the ways that our family binds us, and I'm just a sucker for those stories. I'm a sucker for familial dysfunction, okay, I will admit it, but also especially for mothers and stories about moms who they're moms, but that also prevents them from being seen as people sometimes and as adults. And I think it's really funny because I actually had this whole experience talking with people about, um, how we view our parents. And, um, and I think someone was like saying, oh yeah, we don't really, um, yes this was actually uh someone like sent me an article of uh of this essay on electric lit i believe and it was really good it was about everything everywhere all at once and specifically how the relationship in that the mother-daughter one is based on how children also don't see that they're parents are adults, and that's the hardest thing to do sometimes, because you think, "You oh, your parent is your parent, like, they don't have any life, their world revolves around you, and in fact, they had a life before you, um, they still have a life, like, they aren't just your parent, and I think for mothers, that's especially difficult and complicated, because of misogyny in our society, and how motherhood is seen as a natural instinct, as opposed to fatherhood, and how all of these uh, these kinds of different labor are forced upon mothers. So it is very, uh, it's always very interesting, and it just gets me in the feels when I see stories revolving around moms and kids realizing their moms are people. Yeah. So the last story, David and Love, is just, it's just fun and ridiculous. It's about this statue that comes to life during the night, and but he's scorned by the girl that he likes, um, the human girl, because she sees him as like pretty creepy, and it's funny because he's like trying to win her over and stuff, but she's just like ill, and but then one night he makes the ultimate sacrifice, and I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but it's like Toy Story but a little creepier so yeah this short story collection there's definitely some really good ones in there that hit with me and the rest like i said they're fun they're not like standouts to me but they are fun so i do think overall the collection is worth buying um if you're interested in that so yeah now we're gonna move on to another book that i really liked which was Heart of Dracula, the first book in Immortal Soul by Catherine Kingsley. And this was a really engrossing book, and it was almost perfect, like almost an almost perfect romance book. I really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, basically, this delivered exactly what I was looking for. I wanted a good romance, and Kingsley gave me that. The writing is really easy to become immersed in and the romance is tense and treads the line carefully as both Maxine and Vlad are prey and predator. And this is a book that is about Maxine who is a psychic woman and she wears gloves because she can't touch anything or anybody or else she psychically connects with them and basically will suck the life and the soul out of them and it's a really terrible ability that has prevented her from getting close to anybody as she basically puts them into comas and it's also a very traumatic ability too of why she had to use it the first time and how she found out about this ability but this isolation from the rest of humanity is what brings her and part of the reason why she connects with Vlad. And Vlad is uh, the vampire, Vlad the Impaler. And he's just this very threatening and ominous yet of course sexy and charismatic character throughout this book. And I really like how inhumane he is. Like when Kingsley describes Vlad he is not typically, you know, f- attractive even in that vampiric sense but he is very much a vampire and inhuman and there is an attractiveness in that as there would be with a uh, really strange but deadly uh, animal where like part of the attraction is the deadliness and um that knowledge of like power I guess so the reason why I can't say this book was perfect for me was because there were a few moments um I was a bit dubious of as Maxine hesitates in giving vocal consent but the rest of the book made it really clear that there's a romantic and sexual charge between the two leads and that it's firmly consensual and and like most of the interactions are consensual um, there's just, like, a few in the beginning um, that I was, like, mm, about. So there's a good amount of Fang usage that reads as pretty sexy, and which I think will make people happy if you're into that kind of thing. And I really like that, um, you know, that again, that line between, like, prey and predator, um, and... The way that these two really lonely souls just connect together, and I'm going to read you um, some quotes. I really especially love it when Vlad is talking about his feelings of um, being a vampire and what exactly that means, and uh, really the psychological effects and the damage of not being able to connect with most of the people around him for decades and centuries even. So at one point he says, "'Sinner, lover, tyrant, saint, I have been it all. I have more capacity by benefit of all my years for all the things that might make a man such a thing. Jealousy, anger, hatred, and yes, even love. While my heart may be cold in my chest, while I may be dead, I still feel.'" And also, I will read you a little uh, sexy moment, I guess, of when Maxine first meets Vlad and you see that uh, charge between them, that chemistry, and he's trying to seduce her. And it's really it's really fun because it is similar to that typical vampire seduction sort of thing, but I think that it's reading about it um, makes you feel it that much more like you feel the temptation no new images took over new visions took over instead of blood upon the muck it was sand sheets it was teeth but they scraped and toyed they worshipped and teased they bit but she felt pleasure at their touch not pain and terror i will not kill you i will not hurt you so yeah there's just this deep sadness with the way Kingsley approaches Vlad's immortality. And there's that sadness and also the understanding, I think, between both of them that, like, she will die. Maxine will die before him, even if they get together. But Vlad still has has this determination that he still wants to be with her. He still wants to make the best of their time together. And I found something lovely in that determination. Like he says to her, you are more fleeting to me than a flash of a firefly in the night. Barely will I even have registered that you exist before you are gone. Even if you were to wish for my eternal kiss, you will fade to dust before I can do little more than blink. All things drop away from me and are gone. You observed it as such, did you not? All to me is as sand within my grasp. and near the end the only thing that's really preventing maxine from being with Vlad is this moral dilemma as he's he's come to london to basically raise the city to the ground and it's interesting because the way he talks about it it's like it's almost as if it's not him it's this deep darker part of him where (laughs) once in a couple centuries he just has to like burn a city down and like kill people um but obviously Maxine sees it as a part of him. And is like, I, I understand the darkness within you, but at the same time, like if you're going to burn down the city I love and just kill innocent people, I can't really get on board with that, which is fair, you know, it's fair. Um, And it's an issue that I'm really interested to see resolved and discussed in the next book. So overall, Heart Dracula is just a really engrossing romance with this strong emotional core and a fascinating and sweeter-than-expected relationship. I definitely recommend it. Okay, so the next book I'm going to talk about, I I did not love it. I did not really like the second half. It fell down a lot for me, Um, but again, you know... It's, Just might be me, like there are people that I like um, whose reading tastes are similar to mine that did enjoy it. So it is The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O. I really enjoyed the first half of this book and I do recommend the book overall to those interested in its premise. It's about this young girl named Mina who chooses to sacrifice herself to be the sea god's bride in place of her brother's loved one. When she enters the realm of the spirits and gods, she finds a comatose sea god and her soul locked away. As Mina tries to solve the mystery of the sea god, she is torn between her duty to her people and a growing attraction to a mysterious god named Shin. There's no other way to really say it, but the second half of the book was disappointing to me. The first half set up the world and characters well and the stakes were raised nicely. It introduces political machinations of the spirit realm, which I found fascinating and promised characters with hidden deaths and relationships. I think the characters had so much potential to become more than they did by the end of the book, and that juggling the mystery and the romance was too much on top of a larger cast of characters. Some of them felt pretty superfluous, and the overall ending and uh, and the overall mystery ended up being quite boring. I also wish the story had subverted more of the expectations placed on this legend of the bride and the sea god and that these characters had more agency. It felt as if things were happening to Mina instead of her actively trying to solve a mystery. On top of that, I wasn't a fan of her relationship with Shin. The romance felt wedged in there for no reason, and there was little chemistry between them. But to end on a positive note, one thing I really loved about the book is how it talks about the nature of godhood. Mina's people have gone through many natural disasters, and when she sees the surface indifference that the gods have in the spirit realm towards humans, she's disappointed and angry. As the book progresses, she sees that some of them do care, and that many disasters are brought upon humans by those who are corrupt. So like at one point, Shin says to her, to blame the gods is to blame the land itself look upon your reflection to find your enemy which is something that i really like like i like the idea of these external divine forces as yes they influence us but also um you know the gods are a reflection humans affect the gods and their images so for example in neil gaiman's american gods where you have the old gods but then If people stop believing in the old gods and then they stop believing in new things, even if, you know, they don't seem like gods. Like, oh, you used to believe in Odin, but now you believe in the power of, like, media, for example, or technology. Um, It's all about that power and what's in the collective consciousness of humans. So I really like um, the sort of reciprocal or the two-way street, I guess, between humans and gods and how if things are going wrong, it's because of the gods, but it's also because of what humans are doing. Like, you can't displace all of the blame onto these divine forces. So I was really into that. And if you're still interested in the book, I don't think reading it is a waste of time, and it's very possible you'll love it. The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea just wasn't for me, unfortunately. Okay, so this is going to be the last book that i record about today because i am losing steam but i want to get this out before it is officially august so i want to end on a good note and talk about another one of my favorite books this month which was violets by kyungsook shin and she is an author that has been on my list for a while um just because i've heard great things about like um Please look after mom. Yeah, I've heard great things about that, and that's been on my TBR for a while. So first of all, like this book, not a lot really happens. It's a very like character-driven, um, in a voice-focused kind of book. So if you're looking for something with more action, this is definitely not it. Like a lot of this is about um the protagonist thinking about her life and dealing with her desires and a lot of internal thoughts and um, yet it's really engrossing and I usually get a little bit bored with these kinds of books but I think that the voice was just really compelling and it was just short enough that I never felt that way. So what is Violet's about? So violence is a bittersweet and poignant short book about desire and hopelessness set first in the countryside, then moving to the city alongside its protagonist son. So trigger warning for rape in this book, uh, but it's not discussed in detail. I think like, I think, yeah, like the scene, it, it, it is graphic, but it's not super graphic. <laughs> um, I always have a hard time. Like, describing it but i do think it was very like respectfully tastefully done um yeah and i will warn you though it this scene is near the end of the book so there's not really any time spent on recovery for san the first chapter of this book has got to be one of the most striking i've ever read as san describes her hometown including her relationship with her family and her best friend namai a charged moment with namai namai I'm sorry for pronouncing that wrong, then leads to a heartbreaking rejection. It's a moment San recalls later in heart-wrenching detail, and Violet Violet continues to be full of other moments similar to it as she navigates contemporary Korean society. I love how San's issues and desires are portrayed and grow throughout the book, sometimes in very surprising ways. Her son's infatuation with the photographer was jarring, yet understandable, as she's growing old in a society that presses women to um, to marry. Uh, I also enjoyed her relationships with other women, both positive and negative, and could empathize strongly with her feelings of futility and the desire and wish to belong elsewhere. I do wish that we got more about one character in particular, which was Son's mom, just because they seem to have a very complex and interesting relationship. And I really wish that we got more about that. It feels like a plot or character point that Shin forgot about. I also really like the ending in retrospect, even though I closed and I was like, oh, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. But I actually think it really suits the book, even though it did make me sad. Overall I really enjoyed Violets. It'll leave you a little devastated and it's perfect for those looking for a sometimes dream like book. So that's what I read this July. Yeah. But I read a couple of other things, but I'll talk about that in the next episode. But I hope everybody is doing safe. I hope that you know the heat is finally dying down, hopefully, which is great. Um, yeah. And I'm just wishing for a lot of good reads for next month and a lot of good things for next month for myself and all of you guys. So I will see you for the next episode. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Bye!